Hi there, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Before we begin, I'd like to draw your attention to a new show I recently discovered, another podcast called The History of Scotland Podcast. As the name suggests, it is a podcast about the history of Scotland. And if you're interested in this show, if you enjoy this show, I'm certain you'll also get a lot out of this history of Scotland. As you can imagine, there's a lot of crossover between the history of Anglo-Saxon England and the history of Scotland. Um, I touched on it a little bit briefly in the Northumbrian series, but this show offers a much more in-depth, obviously Scottish-centric view of things that is just really fascinating and presented in a really interesting and compelling way. And I think if, as I said, if you enjoy this show, I'm certain you'll get a lot out of that. So that is the History of Scotland podcast, available on all platforms. And also, if you want to support this show, then as usual, leaving a like, comment, rating, subscribe, review on whatever platform you're using is extremely helpful. If you're able to, you can also support us on Patreon, and we also now have an Instagram account. Anything and everything you can do is greatly appreciated and helpful. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 24, Coenwulf, the last Mercian overlord. King Coenwulf of Mercia, like Athelbald, tends to be somewhat overshadowed by Offa. Offa was such an enormous figure and attempted to bring about such huge changes in the way things were done in Mercia that it's inevitable that those who immediately preceded and followed him would be eclipsed somewhat by him. Coenwulf, though, like Athelbald, was a successful king by the standards of the time, and while he didn't achieve as much long-lasting fame as Offa, he nevertheless is worthy of study in his own right. However, it's also true that Coenwulf was the last Mercian overlord of southern England, and that the Mercian supremacy, which began under Penda in 633, crumbled after Coenwulf's death in 821. This was, though, as we'll see, not primarily due to Coenwulf himself, despite what later historians claimed. Coenwulf was a distant cousin of King Offa. He claimed to be descended from another brother of King Penda, named Kenweal. Who this was, though, is hotly debated. It is possible, indeed it's been suggested by several scholars, that it was Kenweal, King of Wessex, who was Penda's brother-in-law, but who angered the Mercian king by repudiating his wife while their children were still young. The children then probably returned to Mercia with their mother, so it is likely that Coenwulf, if he was one of them, was raised in Mercia despite having a West Saxon father. If he wasn't a descendant of Kenweal of Wessex, then probably this Kenweal, who is otherwise unattested in the primary evidence, much like Eowa, was just another Mercian noble, and his sons another noble line in the Mercian kingdom. Either way, being a descendant of Penda and thus a potential claimant to the throne 
was a dangerous thing to be regardless of who exactly your father was. And this was probably the same for Coenwulf as it was for Offa and Athelbald before him. It seems that Coenwulf's early life followed a fairly similar trajectory to Athelbald's and Offa's. He is totally invisible during Offa's reign. He didn't witness any of Offa's charters, indicating that he was probably a victim of Offa's centralising tendencies. Like so many other Mercian kings, this means he probably spent the years before his reign as a political exile. According to Alcuin, this bloody streak of Offa's reign was ultimately the undoing of his grand ambitions. Offa was succeeded in 796 by his son Edgefrith, the Edgefrith who he had officially anointed as his heir during his reign. But Edgefrith himself only reigned for a few months before dying in the same year. No traditions of foul play survive, it seems that Edgefrith's death like Offa's was natural, but Alcuin, in a letter, chalked this up to the fury of God against the crimes of Arthur, by which he had secured the throne for his son. These crimes probably included Coenwulf as one of their victims. With the throne empty and no obvious heir, it seems that Coenwulf was the obvious choice to succeed, given his distant kinship to Arthur. We cannot know if there was any violence around his accession, the chronicles and records of the time don't record any, but it wouldn't be surprising given the trend of Anglo-Saxon royal history that we've seen so far. When he became king in 796, Coenwulf had an unenviable position on his hands. While Offa had sought to centralise control in an imperial system, his power had still been at its core personal, and with both Offa and Edgefrith gone, the kingdoms of southern England that had found themselves under Mercian control, such as Kent and East Anglia, reasserted their independence. Coenwulf set about reasserting Mercia's position, but he had to do so extremely carefully. Coenwulf's relations with Northumbria and Wessex were seemingly complicated by the death of kings with personal ties to Offa. At the same time as Offa and Edgefrith died, King Ethelred of Northumbria was murdered and succeeded by Eardwulf, as discussed in episode 17 of this podcast. Ethelred had been married to one of Offa's daughters, and thus presumably enjoyed Mercian backing. Since Eardwulf was a bitter enemy of Ethelred's, the Mercians probably saw him as a threat, and thus supported attempts to remove him by backing pretenders to the Northumbrian throne, and by giving sanctuary to Eardwulf's enemies. This culminated in 801, in Eardwulf's leading an invasion of Mercia, which was settled only through arbitration by bishops. Although an explosive event, this was the only instance of open hostility between Mercia and Northumbria during Coenwulf's reign. This probably wasn't due to any growing affection between the two kings. Rather, it can probably be chalked up to Northumbria's becoming so racked by dynastic struggle in the following decades that it became incapable of defending itself, let alone threatening anyone else. Relations with Wessex were somewhat more peaceful, but nevertheless tense. The king at the time of Coenwulf's succession was Beortrich. He was married to one of Offa's daughters, and had always been an ally of the Mercian king. This alliance seemingly continued under Coenwulf until Beortrich's death in 802. He was succeeded by Egbert, a man who, under Offa, had fled into exile at Charlemagne's court. He was no friend to the Mercians. 
He never engaged them in outright warfare, but he was fiercely independent, and prevented Coenwulf from achieving complete overlordship of southern England throughout his reign. When we expand the picture to consider Coenwulf's dealings with all the kingdoms of southern England as well as those of Wales, the image emerges of a very canny king, extremely cautious in the face of potential danger, but nevertheless ruthless in pursuing his goals. His ruthlessness can be seen particularly in his dealings with the Welsh, the East Angles and the East Saxons. From around 816, we know he waged constant or near-constant war with the Welsh, as was becoming customary at this time for Mercian rulers. In East Anglia, numismatic evidence, that is, the evidence of coins, suggests that the East Anglians briefly regain their independence following Offa's death, when a mysterious new king called Eardwald began to mint his own coins without any reference to Offa, or to the Mercian kings in general. But this was seemingly crushed by Coenwulf around the year 805, when he took control of the East Anglian mints and began minting his own coins in East Anglia, Eardwald completely vanishing from the record. Similarly, the East Saxons seemingly regained their independence for about a decade, between the abdication of their Mercian-friendly king in 798 and 811, after which point they begin to witness Coenwulf's charters, first as sub-kings of the East Saxons, but then undergoing a gradual decline in rank until they become simply ducks by 814. Coenwulf's caution, though, is reflected in his dealings with Kent. Kent became an independent kingdom again after Offa's death, under a man named Eadbert Prayen, who had been an exile in Charlemagne's court, presumably an exile from Offa. Upon returning to Kent and becoming king, he drove out the pro-Mercian Archbishop of Canterbury, Athelherd, when he took control of the throne of Kent. Coenwulf desperately wanted to remove Eadbert, but he was anxious to do so without papal approval, probably given Eadbert's ties to Charlemagne. And so, in a letter to Pope Leo III, Coenwulf alleged that Eadbert had previously been ordained a priest, and thus was unable to become a king. This argument was successful and led to Eadbert's being excommunicated in 798. With this, Coenwulf invaded. He captured Eadbert and had him blinded and mutilated, and then established his brother Cuthred as King of Kent, who would often witness charters alongside his brother as the King of Kent, Coenwulf being the King of Mercia. When Cuthred died in 807, Coenwulf then assumed direct control of Kent, which lasted until his death in 821. Thus, Coenwulf re-established Mercian supremacy in the south through a mixture of diplomacy and brute force. A major difference, though, between his own supremacy and that of Offa was that he wasn't able to win over the West Saxons and the Northumbrians into being, if not allies, at least friendly to his regime. This inevitably placed limits on how much Coenwulf could do. Certainly he couldn't be as audacious as Offa, but in his dealings with the smaller kingdoms, he nevertheless clearly kept alive the flame of overlordship. Indeed, he was seemingly so taken by his successes that in at least one charter, he styled himself emperor, the first Anglo-Saxon king to do so before the 10th century. Even Offa, despite attempting to create a Mercian empire, never went so far as to call himself emperor. 
This one fact reflects Cohen Wolf's elevated opinion of his own position. Hi listeners, I wanted to take a second to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, restaurant-quality, and dietitian approved and it's all ready to go in two minutes with minimal meal prep. I've had some fantastic meals like butter chicken and tomato risotto with Factor, and I've got to say I've been extremely impressed with all of them. They genuinely are restaurant quality. You'll get over 35 different options to choose from every week if you try out Factor, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, with pancakes, smoothies, and more, there's over 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and ready to go throughout the day. Factor also works around your schedule. You can order as little or as much as you need each week, and they even let you reschedule deliveries any time of when those unexpected somethings happen to pop up. And to top it all off, Factor is cheaper than ordering takeout, so it really is a smart move to try it out. Get started today and get after your goals. If you're interested in trying Factor, head to factormeals.com slash anglo50 and use code anglo50 to get 50% off. That's code anglo50 at factormeals.com slash anglo50 to get 50% off. But there was one other issue remaining from Offer's reign that had to be dealt with, the problem of Litchfield. As we discussed in the last episode, Offer established Lichfield as a third archbishopric due to his contentious relationship with Jan Baird, Archbishop of Canterbury. Cohen Wolf clearly did not support this settlement, probably because it left his southern English domain divided between two archbishoprics. In 803, he convened a council at Cloverso to abolish the Archbishopric of Lichfield. But he also did not actually support restoring Canterbury. It was now clear to him that Kent would go into revolt at the slightest provocation, and thus endanger mercy and control of the church. In his letter to Pope Leo III, the same one in which he set out the case for Eadbert's excommunication, Cohen Wolf also argued that both Lichfield and Canterbury should be abolished, and the southern archiepiscopal see be moved to the Mercian city of London, and be filled by the exiled pro-Mercian archbishop. Leo reacted negatively to the implied criticism of his predecessor's support for the Lichfield endeavour, and insisted that the archbishopric remain at Canterbury. This set the stage for Cohen Wolf's fractious relationship with the church, which would dominate the later years of his reign. Although Athelhaird was a loyal servant, Cohen Wolf fell out publicly with his successor Wolfred, specifically over the issue of lay control of church lands. The animosity between the two was already strong in 808, when in a letter from Pope Leo to Charlemagne, the Pope mentioned that Cohenwolf had not yet made peace with Wolfred, implying that the two had fallen out. The disagreement over the control of church lands, though, didn't become obvious, at least not publicly, to all until 816, when Wolfred presided over a council at Chelsea, which attacked to lay control of religious houses. The council asserted that Cohen Wolf did not have the right to make appointments to nunneries and monasteries, although both Leo and his predecessor, Pope Hadrian I, had granted Offer and Cohen Wolf this right. The council seems to have been initiated by Cohen Wolf's recent appointment of his daughter, Quoenthrith, to the position of the abbess of Minster in Thanet. 
Pope Leo's successor, Pascal I, rejected Wolfred's arguments and confirmed Coenwulf's privilege, but this did not end the dispute, and it quickly escalated to the stage where Wolfred was barred from performing his archiepiscopal duties. This occurred around 817, since in that year Wolfred witnessed two charters in which Coenwulf granted land to Denebert, Bishop of Worcester, but there's no further record of Wolfred acting as Archbishop for the rest of Coenwulf's reign. One account records that the quarrel between Wolfred and Coenwulf led to Wolfred being deprived of his office for six years, with no baptisms taking place in England during that time, but this may have been an exaggeration, with four years being more likely. Either way, it seems that Wolfred was prevented from acting as Archbishop during the final years of Coenwulf's reign, on account of his dispute with the king. Coenwulf died in 821, and to later historians, the death of Coenwulf was the beginning of Mercian decline. This was caused, they said, by an event which occurred shortly after Coenwulf's death. His infant son, Kinahelm, often referred to by the writers of the time as Kenelm, was chosen as king and entrusted to the care of Coenwulf's daughter, Quoenthrith, she who was the abbess of Minster and Thanet. During this time, and possibly on her orders, the infant Kenelm was taken into the woods and decapitated. Kenelm, the legend goes, had a dream of his death the night before, and when the moment came, he accepted it with joy by singing the liturgical hymn, the Te Deum. Kenelm was buried initially in an unmarked grave, but his soul as a dove flew to Rome and gave a scroll to the Pope detailing where he was buried. The Pope ordered an investigation, and the body was found and taken to Wincham, a monastery founded by Coenwulf earlier in his reign, and at which Coenwulf was buried. After the discovery and burial of Kenelm's body, Coenfrith died a horrible death, and Coenwulf's brother, Chaelwulf, became King of Mercia. This legend was only recorded in the late 10th century, and it seemingly has little historical truth behind it. Kinahelm, who in the legend was said to be seven years old at the time of his father's death, was seemingly twelve years old in the year of his father's accession in 798, and thus he was about 35 when his father died in 821. Quoenthrith, as we've said, was also abbess of Minster and Thanet, and was never entrusted to the care of her brother. Kinahelm may well have been murdered after his father's death, certainly he doesn't seem to have become king. But for later historians, after the cult of Kenelm became established at Wincham, and became one of the most popular of saints' cults in Anglo-Saxon England, the murder of Kenelm was seen as the final nail in the coffin for Mercian domination, since God would never allow such an evil kingdom as would kill an innocent child to remain dominant. As said though, this was a later legend, and doesn't seem to have much to do with the actual history. While the suggestion of divine punishment for the murder of Kenelm should be treated with suspicion, it is true that Coenwulf was the last king of the Mercian supremacy. I've already pointed out that in some ways Coenwulf's domination of southern England was less firm than that of his predecessors, but his successors would fail to reach the levels that even Coenwulf had achieved, let alone the same kind of success that the Mercians had enjoyed since the days of Penda. In their place, Wessex would begin its rise to dominance, that would one day result in the creation of the Kingdom of England. In the meantime, Mercia would, like Northumbria, be torn apart by internal disputes, 
and encroaching Norse raiders. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. If you have, I would like to request that you leave a like or a comment or a subscribe or a five-star rating or a review on whatever platform it is you use. It all helps us with the algorithm and get more eyes on or rather more ears on the podcast. If you're interested, we also have our Patreon, which really helps us to keep the show going. And we now also have an Instagram account. Again, I also want to give a shout out and recommend to you all the History of Scotland podcast. It's extremely interesting. I'm certain if you really enjoy this show, then you'll get a lot out of this podcast as well, since there's a lot of crossover between the history of Scotland and the history of Anglo-Saxon England. So once again, that is the History of Scotland podcast, available wherever podcasts are found. But once again, I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.